A Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, episode 141. Welcome to The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. I'm your host, Dr. Yishai Barkadari, psychologist and adaptability coach to entrepreneurs and business leaders. I believe that working on your business is more important than working in your business. If you want to achieve your business goals and dreams without the cost and pain of having to make every mistake yourself, then The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is the podcast for you. I'm here to help you learn from the lessons of entrepreneurs and business leaders to help you work on yourself and your business so that you can save time, energy, and grow faster. For those of you new to the show, The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai presents three new episodes each week. On Insight Sunday, we dive into the minds of business leaders through insightful guest interviews. On Story Tuesday, we dig deeper with them and learn firsthand from their stories, hard-earned lessons, and experience. On Thrive Thursday, it's just you and me on the couch, where you'll hear scientific research, my thoughts, and tangible tactics to adapt and grow yourself and your business. Grab a proverbial seat and listen up so you can learn from the minds and mistakes of business leaders and apply their wisdom to your life and business. Welcome to Thrive Thursday with Dr. Yishai. This week on the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, I had Mark Hirschberg, former nerd and tech wizard, turned fractional CTO, leader, venturer, expert on people skills, mentor, teacher, and author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. On Insight Sunday, Mark shared his story of going from social outcast to recognizing his need to learn human skills to developing them in himself and his hires to collaborating to develop a curriculum for all the skills that college doesn't teach and teaching that course for over 20 years at MIT. On Story Tuesday, Mark shared mistakes and lessons he learned about workplace relationships that have become the foundation of his now success as a CTO, leader, and throughout his entrepreneur-focused career, launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to episodes 139 and 140 to learn about leadership from a human skills expert with decades of hands-on teaching experience. All accomplishments Mark built from the ground up because he struggled and had to in order to pursue his dreams. And at the end of episode 140, Mark asked me how to define styles of leadership in a data-driven way that lends itself to scientifically designing effective leadership training. So today I'm talking all about data-driven dimensions of leadership and how to train ordinary people into extraordinary leaders. Before we dive in, I wanted to share that the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is brought to you by Adaptability Coaching and Consulting. If you lead a seven-plus-figure business and want to reach the next level for yourself and your business, if you have passions, goals, and dreams and want to continue to strive as a team, a leader, and a visionary without risking burnout, if you have overcome challenges, developed wisdom, and know 
that adapting is not just for surviving, but a core part of thriving, then adaptability coaching is for you. With psychology and neuroscience-backed tools, the 3D adaptation framework can show you how to tap into and harness the way our brains are uniquely designed for adaptation. You can learn to harness and leverage adaptability tools and frameworks to grow yourself and your company. You can learn to become fast, flexible, and formidable. You can learn to hone yourself further, to proactively adapt, to thrive, instead of reactively adapting, just to survive. To learn more, go to dryishai.com coaching. Now, without further ado, let's dive into data-driven hacks to skyrocket your leadership skill. I just have to start by saying I'm so excited to dive into this because it's one of my absolute biggest passions, practically amounting to an obsession. I'm going to jump in with stories, science, and some tactical training tips, but there's so much more than I could possibly dig in just today. A few years ago, the owner of the therapy practice I worked at called me into his office. He mentioned offhandedly that one of the doctorate-level therapists was unhappy with her supervisor and asked if I would be open to stepping in and taking over her supervision. Immediately, I knew that there was a lot more to the story than I was being told. It's not every day that someone asks to switch supervisors. In a world full of therapists, there's usually a whole lot of talking about and talking through challenges. Suffice it to say, when someone is asking to transfer supervisors, it usually doesn't bode well. And I happen to know that from personal experience of having a really challenging or difficult supervisor. But that's a story for another day. The other supervisor ended up being let go from the practice. And that doctorate level therapist was on the verge of leaving herself. Not the smoothest start. What could I possibly do to help out the practice, the owner, and the therapist? You know, unfortunately, it's not an uncommon story. Almost 90% of people who quit their jobs leave because of their leadership, whether it's their direct supervisor or the management above them or the leadership all the way at the top. I've had at least three therapists who nearly left or chose to leave other practices but ended up doubling down and staying at the practice I was working at just so they could continue working under my leadership. So here's a quick breakdown of today's episode. First, we're going to define leadership because it's at the crux of everything I'm about to talk about. Second, I'm going to briefly walk through the history of leadership research in the social sciences, because that context is actually really important to picking it apart. And then third, I'm going to actually share not one, not two, but three data-driven models for leadership traits, styles, and skills. Fourth, I'm going to share key elements of training leaders effectively based on research. Finally, we're going to wrap up with how you can bring all the knowledge to bear fruit for you. So, what does leadership really mean? Of course, definitions for leadership have included so many different aspects that I couldn't even delineate them all here. It can be head-spinning just to try to define leadership, but practically all definitions that I saw through the research include a single core idea and result. Getting people to act 
in the interest of a shared goal or organization with a mission, rather than just looking after themselves or doing the bare minimum. Every style, quality, trait, skill, or behavior that we call leadership has to serve that singular goal. Whether the organization is a company or corporation and the mission is to make money, or it's a nonprofit and the mission is to change something in the world, or that there's just a group of people who have one shared goal right now. And that brings us to the second part, a quick history on leadership research. I'm going to start all the way back in the late 1800s, 1890s, and early 1900s, when leadership was seen as practically genetic, the idea being that leaders were born, not made. It's also called the great man theory, which is ironic given some of the more recent research on the topic, and more on that in a minute. Fast forward to the 1940s and 50s, and an idea called trait theory started dominating. It's a bit watered down from the idea that leaders are born, but it still assumed that leadership traits were practically inherited. One step I think that's really key here is that researchers started trying to break down what elements great leaders have. At the time, they looked at things like personality, abilities, physique, and social skills. It was a start, and I think it was a really good first stab at parsing out where great leadership comes from. Moving through the 1950s and into the 1960s, when behavior theories entered the research and psychology spheres, the idea that leaders can be made and that people can be influenced really started taking root. It's a departure from the idea that either you got the gene or you're a total goner as far as leadership. And one version of that called role theory explained that you can influence people's behavior by communicating the role and its expectations. And the key element here is the idea of influence, communication, and expectations. All of those hold a lot of power, especially in the hands of someone who makes decisions for a group of people or an organization. In a way, those ideas were the forerunners of understanding organizational culture. It wasn't until almost a decade later, in the 60s and 70s, that more nuance came into the way that we think about leadership. And then the floodgates really started to open. One theory, called the contingency theory, spread the idea that there's no ultimate leadership style, but different styles are best suited for specific situations. Another theory, called participative theory, divided leaders into three kinds of decision makers, autocratic, democratic, and laissez-faire. Another theory called situational theory broke down the idea further to the point of saying that the best leadership action depends on a bunch of factors like motivation, capability of followers, and the leadership's relationship with those followers, among many others. In the late 1970s, another idea hit the leadership research world, that people are primarily driven by reward and punishment. So great leadership is all about twiddling those dials in the interest of the organization to get people to do what's best for the organization. Another theory of the time emphasized adaptability in leadership as organizations and the people inside them changed, developed, and different approaches became more effective at different times. A theory called life cycle theory 
for leadership. Not until the mid-80s did the idea of vision and passion show up in research as core elements of leadership that are essential in getting groups of people to invest and work hard for the organization's benefit. As an extension to this idea, transformational leadership looked at the importance of relationships in motivating and increasing investment in the organization. In the 2010s, the idea of participative leadership, where leaders take input from those around them into account, really came into popularity. I tend to think of that as being closely related to the concept of servant leadership. And interestingly, one of the findings that's been shown now repeatedly since the 2010s is that if you want to compare men and women in positions of leadership, that women frequently actually get better results in the leadership positions than their male counterparts. Really ironic if you go back and think about the first wave of research that had this great man theory, the idea that leaders were born. And of course, presumably male. But along the way, since that time, we've had a bunch of mashups of the theories, jamming several of them together in an attempt at capturing as much of the factors of effective leadership as possible. All of which brings me to three models of leadership I wanted to share with you today. It's going to be a lot to cram into a short time, so bear with me and feel free to pause or rewind. In brief, I'm going to give an overview of Jim Collins and his five levels of leadership, I'm going to touch on research-based leadership styles. And third, I'm going to touch on Michael Latham's catch-and-release leadership model. In Jim Collins' famous book, Good to Great, he delineates five levels of leadership. Each one builds on the ones below it, and the truly great leaders that drive their companies to the heights of greatness are level five leaders. And of course, his book and his work is based on five plus years of research into successful versus unsuccessful companies and their leaders' skills. So here's what that entails in brief. Level one leaders are highly capable and skilled individual contributors. And while you might not think about that as a position of leadership, it's definitely a prerequisite. It's really necessary for level two. Level two leaders leverage their individual contributor skills in tandem with others, and they're able to work well as a team and cooperate to accomplish team goals. And that's a prerequisite to level three, where level three leaders develop the skill of organizing and getting their team to complete goals and objectives. I think it's somewhat intuitive that In order to be a level three leader, you really need to understand what it takes to work together on a team. And in order to be a meaningful contributor to a team, you need to be highly capable or skilled as an individual. And this is where we get to level four leaders who don't just organize their own team, but they organize larger groups like departments or divisions to meet their goals. And something that Jim Collins mentions is that most top leaders fall into this category, where that level three leadership is expanded into working with multiple teams, multiple levels of management and leadership, and really getting a larger group or set of groups of people to work together to meet their goals. 
But what really differentiates between level four and level five is that level five leaders on top of that level four skill also incorporate what he calls a unique paradoxical blend of humility and will. And that's on top of the other four levels of leadership. Rather than seeking power for themselves, basking in the spotlight or losing steam, these leaders habitually seek and honor others above themselves and keep themselves and their teams laser-focused and motivated. While the five levels do not include a deep-dive description of what skills are essential for each level, it provides a ladder with rungs to pursue one at a time. And of course, in the book, Jim Collins really digs much more into that with many, many stories and examples of different leaders at different levels and why they really fit into those levels. The second model that I wanted to share with you comes from multiple decades of research into different leadership styles. The idea of leadership styles is that they're like a set of tools to be wielded with different groups, individuals, situations, or organizations. In other words, the effective leader adapts their style in a highly nuanced way. Just like it's not effective to use a screwdriver on a nail or a hammer on a screw. Really effective leaders can identify which situations really match a specific kind of leadership style, and then they can adapt and shift and pivot their style in order to make that most effective leadership style work in that situation. So I'm going to give you an example of a few of them, and I'm going to really delineate when and where and how and why it works out well or doesn't work out so well. The first I want to share is transactional leadership styles, where there's an assumption that you have a contractual obligation, kind of like fee for service. The idea there is that when someone signs up for a job, it means they're signing up to do what the leader says as part of that agreement. In a sense, transactional leadership helps to set a framework for clear expectations and boundaries, but there is a risk of potentially being too restrictive or unidimensional even if the work has no other meaningful components like culture, relationships, or creativity, if there's no meaning or purpose for that individual or potentially in the organization. The second, called autocratic leadership, is actually an extreme form of the transactional style where decisions are made strictly top-down with no room for suggestion. It has the benefit of being really efficient, but it also has a downside of being so restrictive, and that can potentially cause resentment in the long term. Autocratic leadership is often best used only in a time of crisis, and when the leader has built a strong bond of trust with everyone in the organization, so they would do what he says without question, and trust that he also has their interest at heart. Next, the bureaucratic style focuses on following rules and procedures with exacting precision. It can be necessary when safety is at stake, or for routine tasks, or when handling huge amounts of responsibility or resources. And in addition to that, it can be really helpful by way of creating systems and processes that can speed up or increase efficiency and standardize quality across lots of different people who are doing similar jobs or similar tasks. But it can be inefficient and even counterproductive when flexibility or creative outside-the-box approaches are useful or necessary. 
Next, a charismatic leadership style focuses on motivation, inspiration, and moving forward. And it can create excitement and commitment in teams that can really boost productivity and help meet tough deadlines. It can be really hard to sustain, though, especially when relying on one leader to do all of the motivating and inspiring. And if or when that leader goes, so can all the motivation, the inspiration, and even a massive chunk of that productivity. Next, it's called a democratic style of leadership. And that's where the leader does have final say, but gathers input from everyone involved, which can increase engagement and commitment to projects and decisions. It also tends to lead to more engagement and satisfaction for team members. This, by the way, is a kind of leadership style that in general or in the past in a lot of research has been shown to be very common among female leaders. And it can also tend to lead to more engagement and satisfaction for team members. But this style can take more time and effort to build and develop. And it can take more time to implement a change or a decision. And it's a real downside when quick decision-making is necessary, like crisis situations. It can also lend itself to getting inexperienced input and potentially making decisions based on relatively uninformed opinions of the people that you're getting input from rather than expertise or data. Finally, it can backfire when or if team members feel that their input wasn't given enough weight in the decision-making process. And it can alienate not just one person, but an entire group of team members when there's a split viewpoint or a split in how people think that the leader or the decision should go to proceed or move forward. You might already be noticing that the democratic style and the autocratic style can be symbiotic if the democratic style is used when there's time and the ability to get input from all the different teams and people who might be involved in the decision or might be impacted by the decision. An autocratic is useful in crisis or when decisions are really important to be made quickly. So they can be complementary in that in different situations, each one can be really useful if the leader can shift in and out of them. The next style that I wanted to share is called a laissez-faire leadership style. And that's where decision-making lies with those who are doing the work rather than the leadership. And it might be the case that support exists potentially or often in the form of resources or advice as needed, but leaders who take this laissez-faire leadership style, generally they don't get involved or guide the decisions or processes in setting deadlines or getting tasks done. And that can work really well for people in teams that require and really benefit from lots and lots of autonomy, but it can be potentially disastrous when you have individuals and teams that struggle to organize themselves or might even lack specific skills or training to effectively fulfill their job responsibilities. In other words, a laissez-faire style could be helpful for those, let's say, who are professional and really capable and able to do technical, skilled work. But if somebody requires on-the-job training and they don't yet have that training, 
then taking a laissez-faire attitude and assuming they will be able to get it done, or someone enters a leadership position and they don't really know or they're not capable of organizing themselves in the team, and the leadership above them just assumes they know where they can get it done, and they're capable of getting it done, that can be absolutely, completely disastrous. So hopefully you can see that these leadership styles really have specific use cases that they can be really helpful or incredibly effective and other cases or situations, and even individuals, with whom it can be really disastrous or unhelpful. With that being said, I wanted to jump into the third model, which is much more in-depth and includes a lot of elements that I've discussed thus far. Michael Latham talks about the catch-and-release model for leadership and walks through it in-depth in his book with a set of fishing metaphors, where he talks about specific skills to hone, and guidance in approaching the process of being an effective leader who fosters effective leaders and grows the organization in the process. Without providing a total in-depth summary, the book provides a structure and path for developing your leadership skill set, which comes from years of research and hands-on experience working with and developing incredible leadership. So here's my quick breakdown. First, Michael Latham talks about leading by example, especially with regard to skills like adaptability, emotional intelligence, clear communication, courage, inspirational influence, and a drive for results. Second, he talks about growing yourself by developing diverse networks around you, cultivating curiosity, suspending judgment, and fostering diversity of thought and inclusion of different viewpoints, experience, and perception. Latham goes on to outline how to develop people into leaders with a passion for teaching, being deliberate, instilling ownership, celebrating others' success, cultivating humility, and learning from everyone. And finally, Latham talks about the importance of mindfulness, mindset, self-reflection, letting go, and even unlearning when it no longer serves us to hold on. So let's take this and synthesize it and get down to the tactics and the science. So how can you use this to train yourself or those around you to be better leaders? Researcher and professor Christina LaCarenza and her team conducted a particular type of scientific study in 2017, and it's called a meta-analysis. In this specific kind of research, The researchers gather a bunch of scientific studies on one topic and systematically examine and compare them to draw out universal findings that hold true over and over and over again. And they can even sometimes make comparisons and learn a little bit more nuance about it. La Carenza and her colleagues looked at 335 studies on leadership training and determined which elements and factors were most important in cultivating great leadership. She and her colleagues found four areas of impact that are incredibly relevant. Reactions, learning, transfer, and result. First, they found that way more than expected, leaders report that they seriously benefit from and even enjoy leadership training. The reaction to leadership training is that it works, it's effective, and it helps. And we're going to dig more into that in the second, third, and fourth findings. 
So digging in. Second, they found that leadership training can absolutely facilitate learning. In other words, training can create permanent changes in knowledge, thinking, and skill, especially when training was less general and more targeted based on an analysis of needs for developing and training leadership. Third, learning doesn't always translate into different and more effective action, but it can under certain conditions. Trainings need to incentivize and help make information tangible and applicable. Practice-based learning is super important, and feedback really helps to turn learning into skill building. And on top of that, one other finding they had was that it helps to use more than one approach or one modality. So not just practice-based, but other ways of instilling information and transferring that information into taking different action. Fourth, they found that leadership training creates results for the organization and helps achieve their goals more effectively. In fact, in comparison, leadership training improved organizational outcomes more than training for hard skills or technical or business skills. Isn't that unbelievable? And there were even more findings. There was a veritable treasure trove. I'm going to share just a few more of the more interesting findings that really stuck out to me. One is that high-level leadership are not just stuck in their ways and can benefit and transfer their learning also. Another one is that both on-site and off-site training really facilitated learning and transfer, but on-site training that targets the organization and its environment and what their goals are is much more effective at getting results than off-site training. And in particular, that comparison is really between training that happens on-site at the organization for the organization by their request or topic that they want versus off-site trainings where all the people go to a different location and the training can be offered sometimes in a more general way or in a way that's less targeted and less applied to the setting that's experienced on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's possible that one of the reasons for that is historically pre-COVID, that off-site trainings were frequently done at vacation sites and they might have been generalized. And it could be that an organization offered off-site trainings multiple times a year. They might just do it week after week after week after week for different companies or organizations. And so they might just have a more generalized training as opposed to something on-site. So there's some nuance there. I think that's really important to dig further into. Another really interesting finding that La Carenza and her colleagues had is that longer length trainings had a greater impact on the results on the bottom line, which might seem obvious if you think about comparing having someone come in and speak once versus implementing a long-term program. But even with programs that were weeks or months long, it was really clear that longer gets more results. And that result was actually a linear finding which means the longer it was, the greater and greater and greater the result was. Okay, so let's wrap this all together. And I wanted to come back to that story of when I had a therapist who was on the verge of leaving and she was put under my wing. What did I do? Well, she clearly had needs that weren't being met and was so frustrated because it was affecting her job and her growth as a therapist. Why else would she ask for a transfer from the supervisor? And there might even be more stuff to dig into. 
But not only that, her dissatisfaction was affecting her work with patients and her motivation was tanking. She was feeling dread waking up in the morning, especially on days that she had supervision. I knew that it was time to put into practice all the lessons I've shared with you about leadership. I knew that I would need to be adaptable, to work to have inspirational influence, to be curious and seek opportunities to learn together. I started by listening and understanding her and her needs. I took a situational approach and slowed down to really attend to her frustrations, what she wanted and hoped to get out of supervision, what she wanted to feel when coming into work, and how the supervision could best facilitate that. I realized that I needed to lead with humility, not to present myself as the person with all the answers. And truthfully, I used to think that I was supposed to have all the answers as a leader. But the longer I'm in a leadership and training position, the longer I'm a supervisor, the more I realize that I don't have all the answers and I don't have to. We can work through challenges together and we can focus on developing skills, increasing competence, and increasing adaptability. She needed me to not be autocratic and dictate what she has to do. She needed me to not be bureaucratic and rigidly focus only on procedures and rules. And of course, yes, we needed to set clear expectations and make sure we're on the same page with processes for routine tasks like documentation. But that was a smaller portion of our time rather than the centerpiece of working together. She needed to unlearn the experience and misery of having an unhelpful, counterproductive supervisor. I needed to let go of a singular way to supervise. I needed to lead from a different viewpoint and experience. Hers. So I took all of that and I chose to engage in a more participative, aka democratic, leadership style. I shared how invested I am in her growth and development, and we had several hours of conversation just discussing how to best do that for her. We came back to that conversation over and over and over again. Sometimes she asked for my perspective on a patient, or she asked me to advise her on handling a situation. But mostly, she shared her work, I asked thoughtful questions, and we thought together about her clients, her approach, her skills. She shared that her experience with me completely turned it around, and she stayed instead of leaving. She got her license, became a full-fledged psychologist, no longer needed supervision, and eventually moved on to found her own private practice. As a supervisor, for better or worse, I have a lot of stories like this. Therapists who stayed for extra months just for our supervision time. Therapists who were working part-time at two practices and left the other one to be full-time at the practice I was at under my supervision. Therapists who taught me how to be a better supervisor and better leader. And now you have the background and the keys to work on your own leadership. From the history of the science and research on leadership to three models for leadership and even research on how to target leadership training for maximum effectiveness. So 
take some time, pick one piece to work on, and get hacking. And on that note, I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today on The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. If you enjoyed today's episode, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It helps grow the show and gives more people like you the ability to learn and grow. You can also click the share button to share today's episode directly with someone you know who would enjoy it. The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai podcast artwork is made by Sam Barkadari, show notes by Yishai Barkadari, and music by www.purple-planet.com. The advice and opinions of the host and guests are our own. I'm a psychologist, but not your psychologist. The conversations and content of this podcast do not contain or create any psychology practice, diagnosis, or therapist-patient relationship with either the guest or the listener. So do your own research before using anything from this podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember, our thoughts and reactions affect our actions. By listening, we can learn from the challenges others face and the choices they make so that we can make better decisions and get better results. 